The Grand Ireland Summer Fair is back in the RDS Dublin on Wednesday the 8th of June. Join us on the day for real experiences, conversations and meetings with top employers, postgraduate providers, seminar speakers and career advisors. Don't miss out. Register now at grireland.com forward slash events. Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer Regan Hutchins tells the story of how thousands of books by Irish and international authors were banned in Ireland in the 20th century in Evil Literature and Censorship. In Dublin in the mid-1920s, a small group of men met regularly to talk about the type of filthy books and depraved, mostly foreign writers who should not be tolerated in the pure new free state, Ser Stoltenherden. This group was called the Committee on Evil Literature and it was appointed by the Minister for Justice, Kevin O'Higgins. They sent him a report with some advice. Scarcely anybody proposes to ban the classics. It is true one witness would ban Rabelais and Balzac. On the other hand, a clergyman keenly interested in the suppression of evil literature thinks that nobody would make himself so ridiculous as to ban Shakespeare. The report resulted in one of the most zealous prohibitions of the written word, the 1929 Censorship of Publications Act. I have read stuff in the public libraries which is not fit to go on any man's table. There's plenty of filth in the world, but you need not pick it up. There is absolutely no demand for this stuff. I'm Regan Hutchins and I read books. I'm very lucky to be living in Dublin, in Ireland, in 2021, despite the global pandemic. Because for over 40 years in the 20th century, thousands of books never made it to Irish readers like me. I was aware that I was carrying contraband, pretty explosive contraband. In evil literature and censorship, We'll hear the story of the state censorship of so-called evil literature in Ireland. It's the story of books seized by customs at the ports, removed from libraries, bookshops, and often physically destroyed. The guards were going around to the booksellers, gently reminding them, you're not really supposed to be selling this kind of stuff, and if you do, you'll end up in the courts. We'll hear how Irish writers were crushed by the system of censorship, and how readers, like me, lived in a wasteland of fear and self-censorship. But we'll also hear about censorship today, and how our digital age is no golden era of free speech. What you're really seeing is a shift in power. The ultimate example would be Twitter deplatforming Donald Trump. The National Library of Ireland is right next to the Doyle, where the Censorship of Publications Act was passed in 1929. A TD, on the way home from a busy day of banning filth, might nip into the library here, and the books not available on the shelves in the 40 years after that act was passed are like a who's who of literature. Frank O'Connor, Christopher Isherwood, Dutch Interior, Goodbye to Berlin, J.P. Dunleavy, Graham Greene, The Ginger Man, The End of the Affair, Kate O'Brien, Joseph Heller, The Land of Spices, Catch 22, Nora Holt, John Steinbeck, Journey into Print, The Grapes of Wrath, Ethel Voynich, Muriel Spark, The Gadfly, The Bachelors, Marie Stopes, Contraception. The censors really banned 
nearly everything you could think of. It was such an extensive list that it was called the Everyman's Guide to the Classics at one point as a joke. Welcome to Censored, the podcast that wants to find all the literary smut. My name is Aoife Fritnach, I'm a historian, and a year ago I started a podcast called Censored about the banned books that were on the Irish blacklist. I've read a lot of what the uh, censors called Satan, Smut and Co. And it's been very educational. Controlling women's bodies was one of the most important underpinnings of the censorship system. Those men had their beady eyes out for printed ads like this one. The Hygienic Store is Limited, 95 Charing Cross Road, London. Revised catalogue of high-class rubber, medical and surgical goods, including French and Spanish skin sheaths, the hygienic washable sheath, the hygienic poor man's friend. Although, of course, other legislation did ban contraception outright, I think they used the censorship laws to ensure that information of all types was kept out of the country. So it wasn't just the devices or the pills, but it was information that the devices and the pills existed, that these alternatives were available. It was a really profound attempt to control reproduction for women. And women are the biggest readers in our societies. And so their bodies are controlled through the censorship, through access to abortion or contraception. And then their minds are being controlled as well by denying them reading material of all kinds. So I think it's really a quite profoundly misogynistic and anti-woman piece of legislation and the implementation of it proved the intention. It's interesting that people were frightened of the freedom they had won. Declan Kybird is a writer and an academic who has taught Irish literature to students all over the world. And in particular, they were scared of many of the writers who had done so much to contribute to freedom of the mind and the movement that led to independence. So there seems to be a tendency for revolutions to make use of intellectuals in the lyrical phase of nation building and then to feel the need to curb and dispose of them once the state is settling down. And uh, I think people realised writers were powerful and therefore they feared them. So much energy was expended in the battle for independence, including intellectual energy, that people had very little left with which to reimagine the national condition. So the censorship is also a kind of admission of exhaustion. Any publishing company now can simply decide with a bit of pressure put on them that they're not going to publish a book. So is that censorship? I mean, I think so. I'm focusing on censorship of evil literature in 20th century Ireland, but today we're still dealing with issues such as who has the power to express themselves and who has the power to silence others. Whatever you think about Donald Trump, seven million people voted for him in 2020, weeks before an unelected tech company silenced him. How should we feel about that? 
Angela Nagel is a writer whose work looks at the not-so-free state of the internet. It's only when there's a contestation of power that one side starts to censor their enemies and what you're really seeing is a shift in power. You know, maybe the ultimate example would be something like Twitter deplatforming Donald Trump. It was a kind of show of force by the big social media companies which have really global power. It was their way of saying even an elected representative of the most powerful country in the world is not as powerful as us. His vision of society was not the one that Google wants or that Twitter wants. Their view is much more international, much more cosmopolitan, pro-globalization. In the 1930s, the elite were politicians from the Cumann Ngael and Fianna Fáil parties. Eamon de Valera became Taoiseach in 1932. The first novel to be banned under the new act was Liam O'Flaherty's The House of Gold. It was a savage attack on what he called the Gombean men who ruled over the new state. And soon other writers like Sean O'Fuelon and Frank O'Connor discovered that their vision for Ireland didn't match that of the government's. Deplatforming wasn't a word, but censoring was. And the attitude of official Ireland to writers and literature didn't really change over the next 30 years. In the 20s and 30s, you have a kind of realist movement in Irish writing, which in one way is a reaction against the idealism of the revival. But because it's immersed in messy, real things, gets censored. So someone like Liam O'Flaherty would be censored. But then you have people like O'Fallon and O'Connor emerging who are telling the truth to power and who are themselves disappointed in the effects of the revolution. You know, a generation that had said revolution or death is now fighting the death of the revolution as thought becomes more and more curtailed. So uh, a great number of the foremost Irish writers found their work censored. There was a general fear of freedom, as you would say, the bleakness of freedom. You know, people had won it and then they didn't know what to do with it. Liam O'Flaherty, The House of Gold. Vladimir Nabokov, Lolita. Sean O'Fuelon, Bird Alone. Simone de Beauvoir, A History of Sex. Samuel Beckett, More Kicks Than Pricks. Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. In Dublin, writers who were once banned have this habit of coming back as bridges. But in this busy park next to St. Patrick's Cathedral, there are 12 writers along a wall called the Literary Parade. It's a series of low, bricked archways with gloomy, prison-like iron gates and bronze plaques. And it celebrates, if that's the right word, what the wall here calls our distinguished sons of literature. One woman, Eilish Dillon, is stuck on the wall in what looks like an afterthought. What is interesting is that out of the 12 writers featured on this wall, six were banned by the Board of Censorship. Samuel Beckett, Austin Clark, Brendan Behan, Sean O'Casey, George Bernard Shaw and James Joyce. His novel, Stephen Hero was banned, but in Ireland, his most famous work, Ulysses, 
never was. It just wasn't sold here. A letter written by a woman to the all-powerful Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid, shines a sorry light on the confusion. Dublin, October 1958. Reverend Sir, I have recently begun a course in liberal arts at University College Dublin and one of the books under discussion is James Joyce's Ulysses. I have been given a copy of the book and would very much like to study it. I realise, however, that being a Roman Catholic, I am not at liberty to do so. Reverend Father Fingleton, Rahini, has advised me to write to you to inquire whether I might have permission to read this book. I might mention that I myself am endeavouring to become a writer. I await your reply with very great interest. Trusting that I will not have caused you any inconvenience, I remain yours respectfully. At the annotation at the top of the letter in Archbishop McQuaid's handwriting, basically is the answer is no. So he wasn't going to allow her read the book. He's very distinctive handwriting. Noel Dowling is the Dublin diocesan archivist who looks after the enormous collection of letters and documents belonging to the Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid. He ruled the Irish Church from 1940 to 1970 and he's been called the Black Rock Borgia. He was like a Renaissance prince. One letter shows how the censorship board and the Archbishop's office shared information about every inquiry or complaint made about a book. It's a response from the censorship board to a member of the public and this person had written in off their own bat to complain that the book The Dead, The Dying and The Damned by DJ Hollins was available to buy and he was wondering why this book was available and the person from the censorship board basically said that they had discussed this book at a meeting and it was decided that the book was free to be sold. This is a wonderful example of people policing themselves. One of the things I suppose that was interesting in the 1950s as well was that the guards were going around to the booksellers gently reminding them you're not really supposed to be selling this kind of stuff and if you do you'll end up in the courts. It's interesting to see that it wasn't all just being driven by priests, nuns, you know, religious, anything like that. Like there was ordinary people who were finding offence at things and doing something about it. In the 1960s, the Athlone writer John Broderick wrote a very racy, queer-themed novel about an unconventional marriage. It was called The Pilgrimage. Noel shows me a letter written to Archbishop McQuaid by a woman who bought it. And the lady had bought the book because there was mention of Lourdes. So the title kind of misled her greatly and she was very shocked when she she read the book. Basically, there's an awful lot of sex in the book. So it certainly wasn't the holy book that she felt she was going to be reading. So she's basically asking Archbishop McQuaid, like, can you get this banned? But at the end of the letter, she said, if Broderick sets foot in Ireland or his native town, I hope he gets a hot or cold reception. Devil's gonna get you. Devil's gonna get you. All the devil's gonna get you. Showing you bond She could have spared her ink and her bile. The book had already been banned. 
The letter, though, shows some people's readiness to be complicit with censorship and their desire to involve the church as well as the censorship office. However, Declan Kyberd challenges the notion of the almighty Catholic Church dictating to the brand new state and he suggests another way of looking at the relationship between church and state in the 1930s. The state itself was so fragile after the Civil War when it was founded that the state leaned on the Catholic Church to help provide the glue of stability, like the way hospitals were run by the Catholic Church, schooling was taken over. Those elements which in a more wealthy community in another part of Europe might have been seen as the beginnings of a welfare state came instead under the control of the Catholic Church. Because after all, priests and nuns are spiritual people. They want to seek the kingdom of heaven, not the earthly kingdom. And yet what happened was they all got inserted as bureaucrats in this alternative social welfare system. And we know how that power became a temptation to some of them and was deeply corrupting. So when we see pictures of um, politicians like de Valera or others, Costello, kissing the ring of Archbishop John Charles McQuaid, it looks like the church is in control and even the state is bowing down to it. But I think actually the reverse is the underlying reality that the church was being used and for very non-church-like purposes. The public were given no reasons why a particular book was banned and no one could appeal against the banning either. A letter to the Irish Times in 1936 by the Waterford writer Teresa Devey questions this system. I have just finished reading Sean O'Casey's Bird Alone. I think that we, the reading public, are entitled to know why this book has been banned. Who are the censors? By what right do they hold office? And how, in case of incompetence, can they be removed? Who are the censors? asks Teresa Devey. And well, she might ask, because the board, when it was first set up, was to include five men, a professor of English, two TDs, and both a Catholic and Church of Ireland clergyman. At St. Patrick's College in Drumcondra, James Kelly, Professor of History, says that by the early 1950s, quite a few of them belonged to the ultra-conservative Catholic group, the Knights of Columbanus. The legislation provided for the establishment of a group of five fit and proper persons to review uh, literature. And of that five, uh, three of them were members of the Knights of Columbanus. By the early 1950s, the Knights of Columbanus had established moral ascendancy over the whole issue of censorship and had come to be the dominant player in the under censorship publications board. And their control was really problematically uh, strong. By chance, during some building work in St. Patrick's, James Kelly found some notebooks belonging to one of the censors, C.J. O'Reilly. He was a teacher-trainer at the college and his handwritten notebooks offer us a priceless insight into the mind of this fit and proper person. He began really quite assiduously. He began by transcribing the extracts that were, were identified as of concern. Number one, The King of Fasserai by David Devine, page 126. Here's Sebastian, he's got gonorrhea again. He's been keeping somebody else's bed warm. 
the old ram. Ben. Number 731, Lady into Woman, Vera Britton. Page 162. Above all, thanks to the spreading knowledge of contraceptives, she has acquired the power to plan her family, choose her work and organise her future. Ban. He soon suspended doing this and merely as time went on then he goes into a position and he just notes the pages or has a, has a one word indicating what the point of concern. Number 31, Star Quality by Noel Coward. Abortion. Ban. So any, any passionate scenes, any reference to, to the bedroom, it was deemed uh, doubtful. Number 82, Scars Are My Passport by George John Seaton. Homosexualism over and over again. Ban. But it gets into slightly dangerous realms. There's a book by Rhys Davies called Marianne. And it was recommended it should be banned because of the frequent reference in the book to the fact that the main character was pregnant and that the book includes, quote, a minute description of the birth of a child. So you can begin to see, in a sense, where uh, this le is leading people attitudinally. There is a, a disposition or a view towards sexuality which is so threatening or dangerous or filthy that the society had to be protected against this. Number 493, Love Among the Ruins, Evelyn Wah. Ballet dancers, operations to ensure sterility, result bearded lady. Ban. Officially, they were supposed to receive books, a number of copies, so they could be distributed among the board members. These books were supposed to be submitted by the general public. But quite quickly, that really proved unworkable because there just weren't enough people out there to find these books, read them, highlight the rude bit and post multiple copies to the censor. It was very time consuming and expensive. So quite quickly, the customs and excise men at the border became a very important way of funneling books into the censorship system. And so when a delivery arrived, they may remove one copy and send it to the censorship board and the consignment would continue until the board had made its judgment. So sometimes a book would be on sale before it was banned. My name is Paul O'Dear. I spent my career in the Department of Finance. In 1961, I was working in Jersey, in the Channel Islands, and it was shortly after Lady Chatterley, the Penguin popular version of Lady Chatterley, became available following a court case in the UK and in Jersey. So I read it, I was terribly disappointed with it because I didn't buy it for the literature, obviously I bought it for the smut. And this was going to be access to a whole new sexual realm, if you like, but it turned out to be one or two pages and that was very disappointing to have to read all the rest of it to find out where they were, you know. I decided to take it home with me, back in then through Dunleary on the mailboat. But the customs man called me straight over uh, to the table. Uh, he opened my case and there on the top of it was Lady Chatterley in all her glory. So he simply took the book, put it down on the table, closed up my case again and handed it back to me. And I meekly left the premises because I was grateful to get away with my life at that stage. Uh, I was very, very apprehensive because I was aware that I was carrying contraband, pretty explosive contraband because the, the censorship atmosphere here had been very, very repressive. There had just been a big trial in the UK and I thought, okay, maybe now there's going to be a big trial in Ireland and I'm going to be in the middle of it. And what will the mammy think? 
That was 1961. I was 17 and uh, relatively innocent in those days. Oh, the devil's gonna get you, showing you born to die. Let's jump 60 years after Poe's stormy voyage. 2021. In the United States, a major publisher cancels a book by a Republican senator because he openly supports a riot in Washington. The senator, Josh Hawley, accuses the publisher, Simon & Schuster, of being Orwellian. So I repeat Theresa Devey's question for Angela Nagel. Who are the censors today? Today, because the nature of power and the particular elite that are in power has changed, the methods of censorship change. So what you're more likely to see is that Amazon will stop selling a book That happens very regularly, actually. The publishers just won't take a book that has a message that they don't like. Amazon is much bigger and much more powerful than any nation state today. Really, exercising state power probably wouldn't even be very effective. You know, for example, if the Irish state were to ban a book, the censorship that we sort of will never hear about is all the writers whose books got turned down and they never found out why. So people who are in the publishing industry also are engaging in that kind of soft censorship. You're listening to Evil Literature and Censorship on Documentary on News Talk. So far, we've heard how the 1929 Censorship of Publications Act was wide open to interpretation. Anything from homosexualism to childbirth, from abortion to bearded ladies, could be banned. The Act said that books could be banned if they were deemed obscene or indecent. But who's the judge of that? And is there any such thing as artistic merit? I put these questions to Dr Jana Fisherova, who's a leading scholar on the band writer Kate O'Brien. Sometimes books were being banned based on individual passages or even individual sentences that were highlighted and they would argue that the whole tenor of the book was indecent. It tells us how difficult it is to come up with terminology that is unambiguous when we're moving in the territory of morality and decency and so on. The Limerick-born writer Kate O'Brien's first novel, Mary Lavelle, was banned in 1936. Some writers joked that to be banned was a badge of honour. The best banned in the land, as Brendan Behan said. But for Kate O'Brien, it was no joke. She received the label of an indecent writer. And once a label like that was given, it was very hard to get rid of it uh, for the writer. And especially a woman at that time. She basically disappeared from the Irish scene. So this might explain why I'm not standing next to any statue or plaque commemorating Kate O'Brien. The banning of her second novel, The Land of Spices, would seal her reputation as a scandalous writer for decades to come. But it would also lead to a change in the censorship laws. The Land of Spices was banned shortly after its publication in 1941 and it's a beautiful story about a life-saving bond between a young girl who comes from a broken family and a nun 
who has also experienced hurt. And the central theme of the book is the importance of an open heart, basically. It's about love. The censors had overstepped the mark this time. The Land of Spices was one of the recently banned books which sparked an angry debate in the Shannad in 1942. Senator Sir John Keane defended Kate O'Brien and challenged the unreasonable censors. Now, I have a book here called The Land of Spices by an Irish writer, Kate O'Brien. It is a book about convent life. It shows the inmates of convents as human beings. They had their little jokes, their little jealousies and little intrigues, and nuns have their favourites too, but surely no one is going to suggest that that is a reason for banning the book. It was banned basically because of a single sentence which contained a euphemistic mention of homosexuality, of a homosexual relationship. The Reverend Mother depicted in it is a most noble character. She goes into the convent and takes the veil because she discovers, to her great surprise, that her father is given to unnatural vice. It was a shame that any government in these times should allow so much good paper to be used in turning out such an accumulation of filth. If references to unnatural vice ran frequently through the whole book and was dwelt on persistently, I could understand possibly the ground for objection. The only problem with the book was the one sentence, but at the same time, because the censors and the Minister for Justice needed to defend their decision to ban the novel, they claimed that they believed homosexuality to be the central theme of the novel, which it is not. This book upon which the senator stakes his case is one in which the central interest is sodomy. But it is a single reference, and that is what I am going to read now. She saw Etienne and her father in the embrace of love. For that phrase, and that phrase alone, that book is censored. The censorship laws were amended after these debates. From 1946, writers and publishers could, for the first time, appeal a ban. The Land of Spices was unbanned. And let me make this clear. We're talking about a time, the 30s, 40s and 50s, where writers in Russia, say, were imprisoned, exiled, tortured and murdered. But I still want to know what kind of culture Ireland's repressive regime created for writers and for readers like me, always anxious to get our hands on good books. What kind of society was it? Here's Dr Aoife Ratnock again. The way that censorship worked officially, I think, promoted all forms of unofficial censorship. And Sean O'Fueloin was one of the first people to point this out. He identified seven censorships in Ireland, only one of which was the Censorship of Publications Board. And the others included the local priest, the local library committee, the librarian, and perhaps most disturbingly of all, fear. And I think that he really identified the effects of censorship at an emotional level on readers and on society. It may have engendered a fear of discussing what you were reading, particularly. And the fear was part of that overall surveillance gossip culture that we now know was so 
toxic and corrosive for women in the control of their sexuality and reproduction, that it led to so much institutionalization. All of this talk around the mother and baby homes issue focuses on reputation and fear of the neighbors finding out that someone got pregnant. Readers must have worried about trying to source books. Local priests and doctors had great power to influence bookshops not to sell books, even if they weren't banned. So a lot of that atmosphere, I think, is engendered by the Censorship of Publications Act. Certain writers were regarded as racy. Of course, some people sought them out for that very reason, even as others were trying to steer clear of them or telling the local librarian not to carry them. I think there was a tremendous condescension in the authorities that got worse and worse with every decade of the independent state and came to a head in the 1950s. Even adults were like children and, and needed to be watched and supervised. Yana Fisherova says that class and money made a difference. You could usually run out to a bookshop and buy a book before it was banned. But for that, you'd need money and you'd need to be in the know. Ordinary readers who were less educated were not to be trusted because they couldn't make the right judgment on a book. But the people who were buying books, they often got to the books before they were banned because the censorship was punitive, it was post-publication. So the book would first come into the shops and then even if it was banned very quickly, at least some readers would have the opportunity to buy the books before they were banned. Those who were waiting for the books to come into their local libraries often missed the opportunity or didn't even know that the books existed. At the same time, you have a huge amount of emigration you know, vast numbers of people taking the boat to England, where of course they can go down the Charing Cross Road and buy anything, pretty well anything. And, and a lot of these send books home. I remember Edna O'Brien telling me, and I presume this happened in the 50s, that when Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca arrived, her friends cut it into separate chapters and circulated it as if it were Samizdat in Eastern Europe, thinking it must be banned and she jokingly said to me, no two of us read quite the same novel because we didn't read it in exactly the same sequence. But we were all, she said, bitterly disappointed a year later to discover the book had not been banned and all our excitement was for nothing. Of course, the dark 50s form the early years of writers like John McGahern and Edna O'Brien and inspired the books which they'd write and which would go on to cause the biggest scandals in the story of Irish censorship. Lots of very good writing, like Edna O'Brien's The Country Girls, came out of the description even of the repression. The account of the censorship actually becomes the master narrative which replaces it. And The Country Girls could be seen as Edna O'Brien's not just first book but Exhibit A because uh, it is banned and the ban is ridiculous. There's next to nothing in the book to object to. It's now on secondary school courses. Ed O'Brien really became the scapegoat, I would say, of censorship in the 1960s. 
Dr. Julia Carlson from NUI Galway explains why Edna O'Brien's 1960s novels about young country girls getting to grips with the wicked city caused such division among readers and critics. The situation with Edna O'Brien coincided with the beginnings of second wave feminism in the United States, in Britain. And this feminist movement was seen as very much of a threat within the state at the time. Um, and I think that that's one reason why she got so much attention and why so many of her books were banned during the 1960s. She never received the same outpouring of support that a number of male writers did. While she received support from people who were opposed to censorship, at the same time, a lot of journalists who wrote about her appeared to be quite ambivalent about her treatment of female sexuality. She appeared at a number of public meetings that she was invited to appear at, um, and she was prepared to take that public stand. Um, and this indeed may be one of the reasons why she was called exhibitionist. In Dublin town, in 1962. The black underwear was Baba's idea. She said that we wouldn't have to wash it so often and that it was useful if we ever had a street accident or if men were trying to strip us in the back of cars. Today, Dublin's Gate Theatre is still in lockdown. But on the 4th of December, 1966, the scene here was packed as over a dozen writers, including Edna O'Brien, launched the Censorship Reform Society. But she knew how to play to the galleries even before she reached the stage. When she arrived in Dublin for the meeting, she held copies of her banned book as she walked past custom officials at the airport. Naturally enough, they confiscated them in full view of the public and the press. One writer who shunned the publicity of that 1966 event was John McGahern, whose second novel, The Dark, was banned the year earlier. The Dark is the graphic story of a young man's brutal upbringing in rural Ireland and is full of beatings and sexual violence, much of it performed by the father in the book. And it's a story of patriarchy and its abuses, really. And it is an examination of the pillars of respectability within Irish society. The family farm, the church, university education and a good job. I do think The Dark is a really interesting example of the presence of sexual abuse of children in Irish society at a time when we now know it was unfortunately rife and unchecked by the authorities. There was quite a lot of debate within the newspapers about whether it should have been banned or not because McGahern was a really significant Irish writer at that time. He was a young up and coming and extremely promising and accoladed writer from the time he had written the barracks. When that controversy showed some signs of dying down. It was re reignited because he lost his job at the end of 1965. He lost his job as a primary school teacher. And that really added fuel to the, the fire, really. To lose one's job as a direct result of being banned was extremely unusual. 
John McGahern often said to me that he found the censorship silly and embarrassing. I was his student when I was eight years old in the local school here in Clontarf. I knew him very well, as only a child can know a teacher they see for hours every day, day after day. I remember the whole row about his firing. What struck me at the time, well, a number of things struck me. Firstly was how much power writers must have if the parish priest and the headmaster and everyone else is so afraid of them. He, he did say afterwards to me that whenever he went past Belgrove School, he said a silent prayer of thanks to the Archbishop of Dublin for releasing him from this. But that wasn't really the truth. That wasn't what he deeply felt. One of John's sisters told me that the day he was fired, he went to visit her in her kitchen and he cried all afternoon. It was a savage thing. Um, and it was one of the last gasps of that censorious Catholic Ireland. I think the controversy around O'Brien and McGahern showed the, the breaking of the consensus or perhaps the awakening of consciousness from a previously dormant public that had really acquiesced in censorship. O'Brien and McGahern represent the beginning of just a new awareness within the public that perhaps this censorship was worth fighting against and was worth complaining about. And the response of the, the censors to these controversies is to completely ignore this public debate and to continue to ban as normal. There is, it showed no signs of stopping. And so I think that's when the politicians felt that they had to intervene, because if the censors weren't going to moderate their behaviour on the basis of public sentiment, then they needed to change the legislation. As we're heading for the 1970s in Ireland, the campaign against evil literature was beginning to weaken. One member of the public who decided to test the system in 1967 was Paul O'Dear. Remember how he had his copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover confiscated at customs? Well, he's been holding on to a piece of paper now for a very long time. This document is a licence from the Department of Justice to import four banned books in 1967. It reads Censorship of Publications Act 1929 and 1946 and it says the Minister for Justice hereby grants to Mr Paul O'Dwyer, being me, this permit to import one copy of each of the following prohibited publications. Candy by Terry Southern, The Dark by John McGahern, 1984 by George Orwell and Borstel Boy by Brendan Behan. This young thorn in the side of the state wrote to his local TD, David Andrews. I wrote him a letter saying that censorship was an institution under which we lived and it's very important in a democracy to be able to study the institutions under which you live, etc. He agreed with me and he said he would take it up with the minister who was Brian Lenehan senior at the time. He wrote to Brian Lenehan and uh, the Department of Justice then sent me directly the cert that I'm holding in my hand. My aim here was really to test the system. 
I had really no interest in reading the particular books. I chose them to represent a spectrum of the sort of stuff that was being banned. And I didn't actually go to the trouble of getting the books. But I suspect that there weren't a lot of people put in for certs to import banned books. I suspect they would have been people in literary circles who, like me, maybe wanted to make a point or who actually wanted to read some of the books. But for the general public, I don't think people would have gone to great trouble to get such a permit. I mean, you, you would be identifying yourself as someone who wanted to read a dirty book, and it's a small country. Later on in 1967, Brian Lenehan reformed the Censorship Act and situation in the country. So I'm obviously trying to puff up my document here. I'm hoping that it's fairly unique, you know. State censorship reformed after 1967, faded gradually, and the madness ended more or less. But could Polo Deer's treasure document ever be issued again? Well, state censorship continues around the world, with books and films and even huge parts of the internet being banned. But in Ireland in 2021, we're more likely to censor ourselves. In the age of social media, various groups can promote their aims and actions, sometimes with grisly effect. But should they be censored? Suddenly, everything you've ever done in your life, everything you've ever said, every social media post you've ever made, even if it's 15 years old, will be used against you, will be twisted, and you will be made into a hate figure. A number of uh, prominent literary figures have signed an open letter supporting J.K. Rowling amid the row over her stance on transgender rights. You are going to be defamed in the media to a point that most people will see as an evil person. Joining me on the line to discuss this is journalist and historian Kevin Myers. Kevin, you had to disappear from your high-profile column in the Sunday Times a number of years ago after what was seen as a transgression. So do you think... So they can actually marshal an enormous amount of pressure without simply having a state body called the Censorship Bureau or something, you know. But in fact, it's actually a much more sophisticated and much more effective set of methods. I'm wrapping up my tour of censorship with a visit to the Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin. It's a really lovely day, but I'm here to see this statue of the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates. And you might wonder, what's he doing here? Well, he fell foul of the ancient Athenian elite who accused him of corrupting the youth with some dodgy religious teachings. And they offered him the choice of exile or death. And he went with death by drinking a bowl of the deadly poisonous plant, hemlock. And that may be why he's standing here in a garden, even though I don't see any hemlock around him. But it certainly explains his cameo in a programme about censorship. Because he's here to remind me, at least, that as long as we have tongues in our heads, we'll always find ways of silencing them. Even if censorship didn't exist, if an artist made politically inflammatory art that offended the elites or the powerful in society, it was always easy just not to commission them or not to support their art again. So it's always existed in that form, really. I take the view that McGarren took that pretty well everyone should be allowed to say anything 
and let the fools condemn themselves out of their own mouths with the stupidity of their utterances. I suppose with social media it has democratised the experience and it's now open to everyone to participate in and also to be a victim of this form of backlash and intimidation and boycott. Once you start saying no free speech for fascists, then you're into the area of who defines who a fascist is. Evil Literature and Censorship was presented and produced by Regan Hutchins and funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland under the Sound and Vision Scheme. The Grand Ireland Summer Fair is back in the RDS Dublin on Wednesday the 8th of June. Join us on the day for real experiences, conversations and meetings with top employers, postgraduate providers, seminar speakers and career advisors. Don't miss out. Register now at grandireland.com forward slash events.